So a guy walks into a bar and says, I want to accept life as perfect and orderly and absolutely without need for improvement. Plus, I also want to be improving myself and avoid stagnation. I feel somehow in between these two poles is my discovery of myself. The bartender looks at him and says, well, what does he say? One encounter, one opportunity. This is the art of mindful service here on the Surf Conscious Podcast, where we will see how everything you need to learn about developing yourself, being the person you want to be, living the life you want, can be cultivated in the realms of service. Let's talk about how this all works. Hello, welcome. So I'll keep the introduction short today. I've got an incredibly rich and insightful interview with Zen T-Monk Wuda coming up. First, I'm just going to ask you for a couple things you can help me with. If you can give the show a review on iTunes, that will really help. More people find the show, listen to it, hopefully get some benefit from it. As well, you can join the Facebook group and be part of the community where we can discuss the deeper dimensions of everything that these episodes bring up because there's just so much to talk about in the world of mindful service. So many struggles, so many challenges that I want to see community support rise to begin to help everyone understand and overcome so we can all learn and grow together. All right, now for today's show. It's a very special one, and I suppose I say that about a lot of my interviews, but this one's going to help crystallize why I talk about tea so much. (laughs) So in developing my mindful service life, tea has had a very important role in that. And the reason it has entered my life as thoroughly is Wuda, a teacher of tea as a practice of self-cultivation. Now this has been a practice throughout China Japan, and Korea as well, for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. This is a practice called Chadao in China, Chado in Japan, meaning the way of tea. As in serving and drinking tea, mindfully and attentively, is a way to master who you are and your ability to connect with others, and depending on how deep you want to go, nature and the universe as a whole basically, as so many Eastern practices of self-cultivation hope to connect you with. Tea as a self-cultivation practice has been a big part of Chinese, also Japanese and Korean culture, for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. It's entered relative obscurity since all of these countries have so aggressively modernized and industrialized in the 20th century and sort of aggressively rejected and suppressed a lot of these traditions. So in the West, they hardly got any acknowledgement at all as a cultural export. But Wuda has been the most successful person that I know of in reconnecting us to these ancient traditions and to the power and possibility of doing something as simple as sitting with tea. Why something as simple and almost banal sounding as tea? Well, hopefully this discussion will reveal those dimensions to you. 
So I'll introduce Wu to the best I can without stepping on the usual landmines of inflating his role more than he would care someone to do, being an ordained Zen priest and of a very humble disposition. So many would try and call him a tea master, but he will assure you that the only masters in Zen are dead. If you're alive, you're still a student, and that's all he is. But he's a student that's made an incredible impact on the world through his project Global Tea Hut based in Taiwan and his endless writings that have looked like no tea writings anyone's seen in a while. Several books and the only authoritative magazines I've ever seen published in English about tea. Let alone tea as a spiritual practice, just tea. He has been working tirelessly and building an extremely large and devoted following of people now using tea as their instrument of meditation, self-discovery, and community building. So I felt very honored that with so much to do in this life, Wuda was kind enough to take the time to speak with me about mindfulness, self-mastery, and just the art of service in its purest, most raw form. And it's truly an awesome discussion. I really encourage you to check out the whole thing. Thanks so much. Here we are. Here's Wuda. So thanks for being on the show, Wuda. Uh, most welcome. Um, it's a real honor to be here. Yeah, I wanted to uh, talk about tea since it's a big objective of mine to reveal to people how they can develop a certain sense of self-mastery in a way, at least move in that direction, doing anything if it's done mindfully. I've found, though, as you and so many in your community have found, that doing this through the art of tea, a tea ceremony especially, serving tea and drinking tea mindfully, has a special way of facilitating this process. So why does the way of tea, as it is called, so effectively sort of plug us in to something much deeper? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in it to unpack. There's a lot um, to think about. I mean, when tea has, in the more recent uh, times, become in the minds of most people a beverage it's the the second most consumed substance on this earth so everybody on earth kind of knows tea and is drunk tea and there's certainly a, <clears throat> a familiarity with tea as a beverage um and from a perspective you kind of mentioned both perspectives from a from a certain perspective anything could be a mindfulness practice any aspect of one's uh, daily life in fact we often assume that we become more cultivated or more spiritual by doing a particular activity more like yoga or meditation. But actually uh, the way to facilitate cultivation is to take the mind that you, that you cultivate in meditation or yoga and apply that to the way that you walk upstairs or brush your teeth or move so that you're, you're learning um, to live that way. That, that's why it's called a practice is that you're practicing in order to live that way. And so anything could be done in this way. And as someone who's living a life of, of Zen, of mindfulness, of course, uh, uh, one, would, one would aspire to do all of one's activities that way. And so if you can brew tea that way, then you can also walk and brush your teeth. So there's that perspective. Drinking tea ceremonially in a, in a spiritual way would just be a, 
an outcome and a, and a natural uh, development of such a lifestyle, such a so you know spiritual lifestyle or Zen lifestyle. But then there's also the other half, which is that um, you know from that perspective, you could say like I invented this ceremony and I did so because I want to live my life and all aspects of it in this mindful way. But there's the other side, which is the fact that actually um, there's millennia, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of uh, tea ceremony um, in the history of, of, of Asia. So this isn't something that was uh, just, you know, recently adapted or, or, or invented, but has a very, very long and deep tradition and heritage um, that goes back literally thousands of years. We don't know how far back. Um, the upper potential, the highest potential would be 500 or 600,000 years. There's no evidence for that, but that's the like, highest uh, the number that, that, that possibly could be. Um, if you need hard evidence, you're that kind of person, you want hard evidence, then um, 6,000 years ago. But um, the place that the 6,000 years ago, they discovered uh, pottery shards of teaware and also depictions of tea trees on, on the pottery shards. And then you can't be more hard than this, which is they've actually discovered rose zones, which are uh, petrified roots of tea trees, which is as hard of evidence as it possibly gets. But the location where the where that evidence was found is is Tianluoshan in Zhejiang province, which is thousands of kilometers away from where tea comes from. So basically, already six thousand years ago, it was thousands of kilometers away from its birthplace, and uh, they did have FedEx in those days. So obviously, that took some time. Um, so how long we don't know, but certainly thousands of years, humans have been um, drinking tea in a ceremonial way, and in fact. Um, the commoditization and recreationalization of tea, turning it into a beverage, is um, very modern in those thousands of years. So for the majority of the history of, that, of this plant and its relationship to human beings, um, most of it is, is sacrosanct, religious, um, ceremonial. So um, in focusing on tea in that way, you're doing more than just um, extending a, a philosophy of mindfulness in which one wants to do all of one's daily activities with a Zen mind because you're also connecting to that rich heritage of this particular activity. The third um, kind of branch of the answer to your question is, is due to the nature of the, this plant itself and what it does to our psychology and physiology. If you want to approach it from this direction, if you want to approach it from a more like uh, physical linear perspective, that, that, that would be just like the chemistry of this plant and um, the fact that it, um, it wakes us up, but also calms us down, which is one of the things I'm always saying to Western people, which is that anything and everything that coffee can do for you, tea can do it better, which is, you know, coffee obviously wakes us up, but it also um, creates movement. It creates a kind of, uh, you know, not necessarily anxiety, but a, but a certain, but a fluctuation, a movement. And um, so you you drink it and you feel like moving, and you create a culture of moving. Whereas tea wakes us up and then also stills us or calms us down. And that combination literally is the meditative mind. So you know, I've been teaching meditation for for a couple of decades now, and um, I think if a reporter asked me to describe the meditative mind in few words as possible. 
I would say the meditative mind is calm and awake. Um, and so when one is very awake and sensitive, but also calm and equanimous, that's kind of, at least with words, as close as we can come in a simple form to what the meditative mind is, clear, calm, and very awake. Uh, so uh, tea makes us feel that way. So it's conducive to um, a meditative space. And uh, so you have those three aspects. You have the aspect of um, a desire to, um, to extend a practice of mindfulness to every aspect of one's life. Um, and then you have the, the millennia of tradition uh, that surround this, these ceremonies. And then you have the, the nature of this plant itself. Yeah, and um, the actual qualities of tea um, are not to be um, underestimated or, uh, or dismissed as um, quite powerful as, as my experience was. Um, so I began sitting with tea, with um, very high quality tea, which um, naturally has more of these qualities. And if you want to look at it chemically, which is, it could hardly be reduced to, of course, L-theanine and theobromine are you know, those, those like calming chemicals, but there's so much more happening there um, that can't just be reduced to that. But um, yeah, so I'm, I remember just sitting um, quietly with tea in a tea ceremony, not quite knowing uh, much of what to do with myself in it. And then without the intention to be mindful, because I don't think I was as good then at being mindful, you know, in everything I do, um, it kind of pulled me in mm. to, a, to an unexpected place of uh, a conscious state that I wasn't used to being in, actually, even in regular meditation. Um, it was much different. It was much more inspired, much more creative, much more here and, and present as well. I don't know. And I felt I was like connected to um, something uh, much bigger than just my own consciousness. So yeah, what is it about tea that has this automatic quality of, of doing this, uh, even if we're not being mindful, which uh, Sabine and I, when, when we do these ceremonies, people don't know what to expect. And then the amount that it pulls them in just sort of often like, like blindsides them. They're like, wow, that was unexpectedly amazing. Um, yeah, I think, the, I think that you have, you have both of those sides. From a deeper, more absolute perspective, the, the automatic thing that you're talking about, you know, this is one of the tenets of Zen, <clears throat> which is that true insight doesn't come from um, dogma or doctrine. One of the four kind of pillars of Zen is no dogma, no doctrine, no scripture. So, um, so true insight is already hardwired inside of you. Um, and uh, as I travel the world, you know, these decades and, and speak and teach around so, so, so often, um, people come up to me afterwards and say that the teachings that I'm giving were articulating truths that they already understood and held inside of themselves. Um, that they, in other words, I was just putting words to something they already knew. And I think that that... Um, you know, as they say the, in, in, in Taoist scriptures, that the teacher can teach in a way that the student comes to the insight without attributing it to the teacher, which is good for both, right? It's good for the teacher because then you don't develop pride or think that you're the source of anything. And it's good for the student because the more that it comes from inside of them, the more they own it and embody it. And so 
the automatic is is not something um, that is stimulated or catalyzed by the T alone. It's inside of us. All of us carry uh, all kinds of wisdom in our genes. Your body is physically the manifestation of all of your ancestors' bodies. It carries all their DNA and all of their genetic light um, and wisdom. And then, you know, the evolution of this body, um, if you, if you want to talk about it in terms of particles, these atoms were born in a star billions of years ago and have traveled through countless forms to become my body. And even in terms of more organic evolution, um, hundreds of millions of years have gone into the creation of this body. And as we sit here and talk, your body is doing countless things on its own. It's regulating your hormones and your heart's beating, your lungs are inflating and deflating and et cetera. And all of that is a kind of nature wisdom, a kind of, uh, of connection. And so, you know, what, what tea really is providing is an opportunity. It doesn't force. That's the slight caveat that I would put on the word like automatic is that tea doesn't, it's not like a, a, a drug or a hallucinogenic substance in that it forces to shift but it creates an opportunity to return home. And um, by returning home, I, I would say what I mean by that is, first of all, a return to our own bodies um, because we don't spend the majority of our time actually in our bodies. Uh, we live primarily in our mind and in the constructs of our mind throughout the day. And that's something that um, most meditators experience fully when they go and sit a longer retreat and have a deep experiential wisdom of that. And I think every human, you, know, you can't take my word for anything. You have to explore your own way of living in consciousness. And I, but I think you'll realize that if you do start paying attention to how you live, that you don't live very often in your body. And so it creates an opportunity to return to the body, which is our home, um, and also to return to what you mentioned, which is the present moment which is, of course, where all of reality is. Um, existing is always in the eternal now, uh, existing in the present moment here and now. And so um, T also creates the opportunity for me to return to the present moment, which is also my home. Um, in fact, one of the many, there are so many uh, origin stories of T, <clears throat> hundreds, and they all highlight different aspects, but one of them uh, is about this. There's a tribe in, in where tea comes from in the birthplace of tea, which is in the southwest of, of China in a place called Yunnan, um, which means south of the clouds. Um, and there, there's a tribe called the Kuchong. Um, and one of their origin stories is that this group of hunters were lost in an unknown forest and a thunderstorm was coming. And that can be very dangerous in those parts because it's a rainforest and it's a really bad thunderstorm, but they're kind of lost. They don't know what to do. So they finally elect one of the hunters to go up a tree and see if he can get his bearings. So he climbs up this tree and, and uh, he still doesn't recognize any, any landmarks, doesn't know where he is, but the ocean of green that he looks out upon and those beautiful thunder clouds rolling on the horizon uh, give him pause. And he stops for a few moments and takes some breath. And he um, then realizes that he's in a tree that he's never seen before that this tree doesn't grow so close to where their village is. And, and so he, you know, out of curiosity, grabs a leaf and, and puts it in his mouth. And they say that when the juices of that leaf flowed into his body, he knew the way home. Um, so he knew the, you know, the, the tea provided 
the road home, the road back to, to, to home. And the story also highlights something that is a part of our nature and all of nature, which is that when um, animals, and it is our nature thus, because we also are born of that same stop, stop both physically and evolutionarily, we, we come out of the same source. Um, and so when things in nature are confused, they stop. They stop moving. They, they become still and start reading the signs uh, around them. And uh, in the modern, especially Western world, when humans are confused, there's a tendency to move, to try to figure it out, to scribble notes, to move things, to take things apart, um, to try to meddle as opposed to stopping and listening. And so that road home is a big part of uh, reinvigorating what I already said, which is true insight. And true insights are automatically in, and already hardwired inside of you. And so um, just by stopping, you're, you're allowed to create that opportunity to, to return home and for insight to then arise in that space. Um, and uh, and guide you so there are three aspects to this practice that's the first one is that it um, ultimately and anything could do this it it, um, it is a, a kind of conscious intentional purposeful willful surrendering of the impulse to do which is not the same as like watching movie or relaxing or or, or being distracted, moving from distraction to distraction, or being distracted into relaxation, because that's not a conscious, intentional. This is a conscious, intentional, willful uh, surrendering of the impulse to do. And that creates the space to return home. Um, and anything could achieve that. So that's kind of the first aspect of the practice. The second aspect of the practice is ceremony itself. And the third would then be the plant, the, this particular plant and its medicine. Um, so those are all aspects of, of, of what this does and, and what it allows for. It, it allows ultimately for insights to arise. And, and those insights in, will include what you just said, which is a, a sense of connection. In fact, one of T's very early names is that it is the great connector and that it connects us to ourselves, it connects us to nature, and connects us to each other, um, which is also important. So... Uh, in, in stopping, you also can recultivate that ability to listen. And when you open that book of listening, you're actually opening kind of the biggest book that, that ever was because it's the book that is this universe and your body. And everything that we know, whether it be scientifically or, or um, psychologically or spiritually, everything that we know in physical space and psychological space, um, we learn by observing this universe, obviously. Uh, but our modern education has become so conceptual and so verbal. I mean, just to graduate from high school, you have to scan um, literally uh, kilometers and kilometers and kilometers of text. And so if it's not articulated in a verbal conceptual form, the average person can't understand it or work with it. But, but beneath and below that, there's a whole sea of nonverbal communication um, with one's body uh, and with the world outside um, that um, sadly is, is being lost and the restoration of that kind of nonverbal communication that ability to listen um, on a non-conceptual level to nature to, to the world around us um, 
gives us a sense of purpose and connection to the world from which we come. And so there's an old Chinese saying, which is that tea brings nature to society. Hmm. It, it uh, helps us to feel connected to nature, but that's slightly misleading because when you say it that way, it assumes that we're disconnected and we're not, which is back to my original point. The true insight is already inside of you. Um, it's not something you have to create or mold or become. You already are it. We never disconnected from nature. A city is not an extra dimensional bubble that exists outside of this earth. Um, it is as much a part of nature as anything. And so we haven't really lost the connection to nature. What we've lost is a feeling of connection to nature. And they're not the same thing. So the feeling's not there. And, and so that's kind of what is restored or reconnected is, is, a, is a reinvigorated feeling of connection to nature, which since you are nature, all you have to do is kind of create the stillness and space for that insight to, to flourish. Yeah, and I feel, I feel like a faint vestige of that ability, tendency, impulse um, to connect with, with nature or to at least stop and like look around was sort of sustained in the Victorian England use of tea to take a tea break, which is still part of British society all the way down to construction sites. Um, I remember actually being on a construction site in London and these like, these like rough cockney accented like builders would be like tea time boys, let's go. And then uh, they drop their, their tools and, uh, and have their tea and just take a moment. And uh, I guess that's been, sort of mapped onto America as the coffee break. We just still um, have that impulse to, to stop and, and leave the cogs of society. And uh, the sort of, the faint shell of tea that <laughs> became English tea um, sort of became our sort of thin thread <laughs> that we remained connected to that uh, in modern times. Yeah, I mean, they, without any real help from the Chinese, the British certainly figured out that tea is a, more than just a beverage or a, even a medicine or a, that it's a time. Mm -hmm. It's a time and space to set down what you're doing and to um, also in that space connect to people you care about. Um, but as I was just speaking about, to stop that just the, the intentional and willful surrendering of the impulse to do creates the opportunity to come home to the body and to the insights of the body and to the moment and to the insights of the moment. And those can all be uh, very life transformative. Yeah, which is why I just, I feel uh, your work in the Global Tea Hud movement is such a much needed antidote to kind of the present day uh, obsession with constant motion, you know, and, uh, and thinking to stop and actually do something intently and silently, uh, like drinking tea um, is, is not considered the norm when in every other society, um, at least in the East, it was um, historically. Mm. So uh, actually this, um, this kind of uh, disconnection from heart, the mind-heart balance of life uh, brings me back to um, the last conversation we had, which was some time ago. And at the end of the conversation, you left me with this story and it's a well-known tea story, but actually you left me with a certain thread of that story. You emphasized a certain one, and that was the Riku and the fisherman story. But I'll tell it because you, you emphasized a certain point in it, which, I, which I've been left contemplating and um, ended up having some interesting insights on, especially with my new work with Surf Conscious. Um, you can elaborate, but I'll give the basis of the story 
to uh, to all those listening. Um, historically, in um, in Japan, during the time of Sen no Rikyu, his approach to tea. He was a Zen monk that basically um, created all of the, the the depth and rigor and form and precision of the Japanese tea ceremony. He's the one at least considered the biggest contributor to it in all the schools of, uh, of tea ceremony, Zen practice through tea in Japan, um, are offshoots of, of his lineage. But I can guess he was probably pretty hard on his students as any Zen master would be. Um, pretty uncompromising, pretty straightforward, and um, constantly whipping them and refining them to get them to perfectly do things and perfectly pay attention and be perfectly respectful and honoring of every aspect of the tea service. And um, you emphasize this part of the story, which isn't always emphasized. And of course, he was an aristocrat. And, and then in, in Japan, um, it was, you know, very, very stratified socially. So when aristocrats were seen talking to commoners, that was like, whoa, what? But he, he developed a certain fondness for a fisherman, and he always uh, was um, sure to be present for him when this fisherman um, delivered fish to his house. And then um, they developed a relationship and the fisherman invited him to his house. And Sen Rikyu uh, agreed and he brought one of his students, his best student, I believe. It was his, it was his star student to uh, be present for being served tea in the fisherman's house. And the fisherman like, you know, wasn't refined. You know, he wasn't part of this school. He was bumbling it, you know, in, in every way. Um, lo it looked clumsy um, from the eyes of his best student. And then when he left, he was like, that was the most amazing transcendent tea ceremony I've ever had. And his student was baffled. And, and of course, so Senrikyu has this experience of a totally clumsy tea ceremony and considers that the absolute like height of experience with tea ceremony. And then you emphasized to me that he was definitely going to go back to whipping his students the next day, which kind of creates this sort of conundrum of like, why, if that's all you need? So I was thinking about it. And this leads me to a question of, you know, his students became his students with the intention of getting better at serving tea, which means their minds got involved right? Because when you're learning form and precision, you're no longer doing things, or at least for a time, you're no longer doing things with your heart because you're worried about how things look. You want to impress your master. You want to like tick all the boxes. And this is with doing anything, with like wanting to get better at anything. Is there like a loss of innocence that occurs when you want to start doing things well? That pulls you away from the sort of humble simplicity of just, you know, sharing time with people? Is this story to tell us that like we create sort of barriers to like true, genuine, you know, heart-centered experience when we start to like get our minds involved and um, want to get better at something? Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot in that story. That story certainly highlights like, you know, you hear you have one of the uh, greatest tea masters in the country and, and he's willing to have tea with a fisherman. So he hasn't lost connection to the like pure spirit of the practice that he's doing. Uh, even though he's traveled far down the road, he hasn't, he hasn't lost them. It's like a musician who, who's getting better and better, but hasn't lost the love for music, the passion that started him 
you know, it, a lot of musicians, we, we know like this common knowledge that a lot of musicians, when they get really famous, their music can, can um, degrade because mm -hmm. the music industry can destroy uh, the, the purpose that music was created for. And so rather than what, what should happen is that the increase in money and fame just allows for more uh, materials, more resources to create better music and a more amplified voice to distribute that music. So now that you have money, you can get a better recording studio and better instruments and, and record better stuff. And now that you're famous, you can blast it to a larger audience. The fame and wealth are there to support the music. But what often happens is the opposite, right? The, the music becomes there to support the fame and wealth. So they're putting out albums just to continue that rich lifestyle that they have. And they lose the spirit of what it is that they do. And that can happen in any, um, in any practice as you think you start to think you know something, then you lose connection to the inspiration and, and passion and love that was there that, that, that instigated your, your exploration of that field to begin with. Um, so there is a need to be able to set, set down what one has learned to rest in the simplicity and the essence of what it is. If I show up to someone's house and they offer me hospitality in the form of a, a mug of tea that has a tea bag in it, that I can accept that hospitality wholeheartedly and connect with that human being without the psychological barrier of me thinking I'm some kind of, you know, tea person. So this tea in a bag's not good enough for me, or this water's not good enough for me, which is essentially saying that this person's hospitality is not good enough for me, which is which is snobbish and 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 ultimately I'm the loser in that equation because I miss out on that opportunity to connect to that human being. Um, at the same time, as long as it's service-oriented, there has to be an a development of, of skill and connection to understanding because it's not enough for me to stand up on stage and play crummy music that sounds terrible because I can't play my instrument. And then when everybody starts booing, like lean into the microphone and say, yeah, but guys, I, I really love music. <laughs> And I'm just here to share with you without any mind. And I just, you know, why do we have to have these barriers of, of sounding good? <laughs> That's like a punk band. <laughs> You've described. I mean, yeah, yeah there, 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 maybe there's a place for that. But, you know, like, yeah, I, I would think even a punk band, at the center of it, there is a desire to improve their ability to play punk music. Yeah. To, to, haunt, to be able to develop their skills to um, play their instruments better in the way that they want to play them. Um, so, you know, there, there's a balance of this. There's a, you know, my teacher used to always say, when you're with me, you can do nothing right. And when you're not, you can do nothing wrong. Hmm. And that's kind of a, you know, that's the, that's the essence of practice. It's like, a, a, you know, to this day, I, I have three kind of uh, very important um, teachers, masters in my life. Two of them are gone. And one of them is still alive, and and uh, I'm fortunate that I can go see him usually once a year. And you know, it's it's immediate. Like the moment I arrive, he's like, "Show me what you got," you know, because <laughs> it's been a year, you know. And the moment I sit down and like start brewing, he's like, "No, mm -mm, move this, move that, do this, do that." Like it's all wrong. Uh, and that's the way it has to be. Like it, 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 right now, the best whatever, the best swimmer on earth. Michael Phelps, maybe that that's the only name I know. I don't know much about swimming, but even though he holds all the world records and he, and he's technically better than everybody else, 
Like right now, he's in a swimming pool somewhere as you and I talk, and his coach is like shouting at him that like, oh, you know, even though he has the world record by like eight seconds, you know, or Usain Bolt like has the world record in the 100 meter dash, his coach is still like, you know, bah! like, you know, 50 seconds, We're, we need 45. And your arms are drifting and you're blah, 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 and you're blah, 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 blah. But then when it comes time to actually perform, when it's like game time, if you watch the coach, they don't do anything. They just stand on the sidelines with their arms crossed and then after it's over, they clap. Mm -hmm. They're like, at that point, there's nothing to do. It is what it is. It's time for the ceremony to happen and the imposition of form uh, will get in the way. But this relationship between form and freedom is very important because um, it's something that is extremely misunderstood, especially in the West. And, you know, it's part of my journey as well, uh, coming to understand this as a man and in and, and the Western man. You know, I grew up thinking, um, to quote Ursula Le Guin, who's one of my favorite authors, hmm. she says, um, uh, when, when a person is young, they think that freedom is doing whatever you want. But as one grows in wisdom and power and knowledge, one comes to understand that true freedom is doing wholly and completely what you must. Mm. Um, and, and so there's, there is a freedom, there is a freedom in, in doing whatever you want, but it's also chaos. And so grabbing the freedom at the get go and graduating yourself essentially from uh, discipleship or studentship, you, you get freedom, but you get chaos. Um, the best way that I can speak about this is that, you know, actually before I was a monk, some people don't know this, but before I was a monk, I was actually a kindergarten teacher. And um, when you hang out with, with little ones, they, you know, they teach you a lot, but one, one, one aspect of what they do very well is, is, is dance. They dance in a way that's very free because, first of all, they lack inhibition, so they don't care what anyone else thinks about them. Um, and then second of all, they, they're pretty good at like feeling the music. They're pretty in tune. They don't have so much mental chatter between them and the, in the moment. So they, they feel the music pretty well. And they move in a kind of, with an innocence that is, um, that is free and beautiful in its own way. Uh, in the way that the innocence of animals or other aspects of nature is free and beautiful. And there's something wonderful about that. But the master dancer, she also is free, completely free. In fact, they, one of the, my favorite quotes, they asked, the, um, they asked the, one of the uh, Pavlovna, one of the greatest ballerinas of all time, they asked her, how do you perform so well? And she said, when I'm on stage, there is no music and there's no me. There's only dance. Mm -hmm. um, and that is an incredible state of freedom. She's completely free. She's not constricted by any kind of form. She has let go of it all um, and is extremely free. Um, she has to be, right? And this goes for anything. Athletes talk about being in the zone, right? If Nadal hits a tennis ball at you like 200 and some kilometers an hour, you don't have time to think about your tennis lessons. You can't like stop and be like, oh, oh I think I better a backhand. And uh, like, there's no time for that. The, 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 in a moment, that would just be point Nadal, right? As the ball hit you in the face. There can't be any form. You have to be completely free and loose in that moment to play tennis against Nadal. I've never played tennis, so I just show up at a tennis um, at a tennis court, and I have no tennis experience. So I'm completely free of any like um, form at all, and and I'm just like whacking things around. 
what's the difference between my freedom and the freedom of Nadal in the middle of a match who is completely empty and he doesn't like have anything in, in his mind. He's not concentrated on his form at all. Or the dancer who's on stage and says, there's no music, there's no me, there's only dance. The difference is two things. What does the dancer have that the, that the kindergarten children don't have? Um, you know, and that's the, that's where it's at is first of all, she has lineage. So she has the succinct way of saying this is a teacher who has a teacher. Um, you, that can, the further that goes back, the better, but the simplest way is a teacher who has a teacher. She, that ballerina, she, she has a teacher who has a teacher and that accumulated wisdom, that accumulated power of hundreds, if not thousands of years of dance. Um, it's incredibly powerful. Lineage is powerful. It is a powerful energy that, you know, this is, that's the first pillar of Zen is nonverbal transmission between teacher and student. So there's a kind of um, nonverbal energy that's transmitted through, through that, that, that lineage that is very hard to describe to someone that's not, that's not experiencing it. It's very hard to talk about because it's something spiritual or foo-foo. Um, but if you need to stay more linear in your thinking, then you could think of it in terms of the accumulated um, wisdom. I could sit on an island and I could brew tea from, from 2 a.m. until midnight every day for 80 years, and I wouldn't figure out even 20% of what has been taught to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not possible. You, you can, any, any human being without a learning disability can learn algebra with a good teacher and a book in two years. You did, I did, you know, unless you have a learning disability, that's pretty easy. But on a desert island all by yourself, you're not going to figure algebra out. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so that's the first thing that that dancer has. She has a teacher who has a teacher. And then the second thing she has is decades of form. She went to a dance studio every day and lifted her leg just so, over and over and over again, just so, just so, just so. And in the beginning, certainly that can feel like a constrictive to your creative freedom, um, certainly. But actually, it's a tool towards greater creative freedom because eventually, you will discover the freedom in the form. Uh, so eventually, in, while in the beginning, that movement might feel constrictive, as time goes on, she will discover the freedom in the form and the fact that she will realize that raising your leg just like that, there are infinite variations of that. Like, what do you do with your arm? Do you pirouette? Do you turn left or right? How do you move from that space? It's kind of like back to music or art is the last analogy I'll use. Um, you might say like, well, I don't need any classes in art because that would be a constriction of my, uh, of my artistic freedom. And I understand that, but there's a kind of immaturity to that because what you're failing to understand is that the, the learning all the skills for how to hold a brush and how to move it and how to mix paints and how to, uh, and how to apply them in certain places, all of that just opens up new doors of freedom. It allows you much more potential and much more tools to express yourself than you would be limited to if you didn't learn that that training. Same with music. If you just learn two chords, then you're certainly you can like go play in maybe a, a you know a band. And you can you can make some music. But if you learn a bunch more skills on the guitar, that opens up a bunch more ways that you can express yourself um, and a bunch more many more tools of expression. So there's a balance between these things. And back to Ursula Boone's quote on a like spiritual level, you know, when you're young, it's common to think that freedom is doing both anything you want. 
But what that often just makes you is a slave to your impulses. And as you grow in knowledge and wisdom and power, you begin to realize that, that true freedom is doing wholly what you must. And by must, you know, I don't mean some kind of imposed dogma from the outside, some kind of like wholly what you must in terms of what some authority says is your must, whether that be political or religious or otherwise, but rather your must in terms of what's inside of you. Right? My, my Zen teacher, one of the first lessons that I got from him, he said Zen is doing wholly and completely what you want, anything you want, what you want. And at first I really didn't like that lesson because I had tried that as a, as a teenager and it failed me miserably. And I was looking kind of for the opposite. But then as the years went by, I began to understand what he was saying, which is that oh, Zen is doing wholly what you want. But that begs the question, the very big question that most people aren't really asking, which is, what do I want? Mm -hmm. So when you find that must, which in the East is called Dharma, right? Your Dharma, your duty, your, your, not your duty imposed upon you by society. That's only a small part of it. But your duty, kind of your God-given duty, your duty that's, that's in the core of what you are. When you find that and you align yourself with that, that's your Tao. And when you align yourself with your Tao, you're aligning yourself with the Tao, capital D. It's like saying you're, you're doing now God's will, which means now you have the power of the world in your actions and you're, you're connected with it. So, you know, certainly there is a need to, to release form and have form. These things need to be in, in balance, right? So I need to, if I'm going to be a professional tennis player and show up and play the doll, I'm going to need to surrender all that I learned in all my lessons. I'm going to have to let it go. I can't walk into that tennis court and spend the hour that we play tennis thinking about um, anything that I've learned. It has to be kind of in my hands. It has to be, if you want, muscle memory. It has to be kind of a part of what I am. But to get to that place where it is a part of what I am requires a, a tremendous amount of training and discipline and self-discipline. And it also requires lineage. It requires connection to an opportunity to learn those skills, which is, you know, something which is essentially what a teacher provides is an opportunity to learn um, and an opportunity to explore those techniques. So both are necessary, you know, it, it, especially when you're talking about ceremonies, because ceremonies have all kinds of, um, you know, practical and ceremonial significance in, in little things and movements and methods and gestures and things. And a lot of those things have power. And they have history and they have heritage and they go back. And I would recommend not underestimating the power of movements that were grooved, not just before you started practicing them, but before you were born. And that's where like the power of, of Tai Chi or Qigong or, or yoga comes from. Like these, these movements, these uh, forms were grooved in by thousands of years of practice long before you were born. And they have a power and they have a practical power too, not just a, a spiritual power, right? Like I, I don't play basketball. I've never played basketball, but I noticed that everybody in, who plays basketball, they shoot the basketball in the same way. They put one, their strong hand kind of behind it and the other hand on the side of it. And I would, I, I could guarantee that there's some kind of physics behind that, that in shooting that way, as opposed to many of the infinite other ways that you could shoot, you could put the ball behind your head and throw it over your head. You could put it between your legs and throw it up like that. There's all kinds of ways of shooting a ball. But they, all, the, all the pros shoot in one way. 
And that has something to do with the, the ergonomics of the human body and the physics of the ball. And that shooting like that increases your uh, accuracy and precision. Precision being one ball and accuracy being many balls over time. And that there more of them are going to go in the hoop just by doing that the way that it needs to be done. And that happens to me all the time. Two or three decades ago, my teacher taught me some little thing and it gave me like two practical reasons why we do things that way. So here's two little reasons why you should do it that way. And they make perfect sense. But then like 15 years later, I discover the 17th practical, purely practical, nothing ceremonial, nothing foo-foo, just purely practical. I discover the 17th reason why doing it that way is ingenious. Why, oh, this is so smart. Like if when you do it like this, it's like it prevents this from happening. Oh my God, I never thought of that. Wow, this is actually so genius. And you just realize that these forms that were developed over over, over millennia, they have built in them a lot of refinement, a lot of uh, real powerful practical um, significance. And then they also have ceremonial significance, right? And this gets into every aspect of it. So then there's a connection through them. So, you know, if you go to a Tai Chi uh, studio and you start learning their sword form, they might want you to buy a, a sword from their shop. I mean, a small minor reason why, of course, is that on a practical level that purchasing your sword from them supports the studio that you study in and they make some money and, and that's a good thing. But there's the, the other reasons, there's, there's a practical and a ceremonial reason why they don't want you to just go to the martial arts store and buy any old uh, sword. The, the practical reason is that the swords that they're selling are designed in a specific way to move in a certain way that is necessary for the types of of sword practice that they do in that in that tradition so the, the the flex of the sword for example is very important in a lot of Ch chinese tai chi uh, lineages how much the sword flexes and so those are all practical details that would be perfect in the swords that they've designed to do those particular forms but then the swords that they sell also maybe have carvings of dragons on them and it's a particular type of dragon and that doesn't have practical significance, it has ceremonial significance in that it connects you then to the lineage that you yourself are practicing. It connects you to, you know, maybe there's a story of a teacher, teacher's teacher who, who saw a dragon or somehow that dragon, you know, was a part of his visions or something. And, and in honor of him, all the sword sense have had those dragons. And by using that sword with that dragon, the moment you grab it, you're connecting to your teacher and his teacher and his teacher and his teacher. And the same is there for, for, for tea ceremony as well. So, um, you know, the teapots that we use are designed to, um, they have all kinds of practical um, aspects that affect tea if you're brewing in this particular way that will help you and aid you and make that your life just so much easier when you're doing it this particular way. But then also there's all kinds of ceremonial um, aspects to the, to the pot that connect you to the lineage. And, um, the final thing I'll say, if you want like a real example of this, you know, when I first started teaching tea, I had come from, you know, basically 13, 14 years of monastic living and essential silence. I was, you know, at least 100, 200 days a year in silence. And um, so when I first started, of all the weird places on earth for me to wind up teaching, the first place that I went to teach was Los Angeles. And, um, you know, the big groups and stuff. And, and in the beginning, sometimes I, I would get nervous serving tea to so many people. And I was just very unaccustomed to even having so many people looking at me. 
uh, at the same time. <laughs> and one of the ways that I could mitigate that nervousness, that make it go away immediately, was if I concentrated my attention on my hands, I, I could see that the form, that the ceremony, that its form was in my hands, that they could do it on their own. And somehow that would inspire confidence in me. It was like the, the, through the form that was in my muscle memory, through that, uh, in a very real manifestation, in a, real, in a very physical way, my teachers were with me hmm. and empowering me. And that, that's, the, you know, that's the other aspect of this, is when you have a teacher as a teacher, at some point, that teacher is going to empower you. And that does something for you um, in terms of your confidence and your power there's the spiritual side of it, which is foo-foo. There's no way to talk about it. That's that energy that's transmitted um, down. You know, if you, have a, if you have a degree in engineering, if you have a PhD in engineering from an accredited university, then you, you, standing up on a podium and lecturing about engineering, you know, you might have to deal with the personal issues of that, but you could always mitigate that by instilling confidence in yourself by saying, no, you know what, I'm trained. Not only am I trained, I'm certified. I'm, I'm empowered to do this by the ones who are responsible for, for certification. And obviously certification you know, has its own issue, problems and things, but it's also a necessary thing for our society. You, you wouldn't want your loved one to see an uncertified doctor. Um, you know? And you could say, but degrees don't really mean, on, on another level, they don't really mean anything. And, just because they have a certification doesn't mean they're a good doctor. And all that's true. But there is something to it. There is something to the fact that, like, that doctor has a degree, that they have an MD. You, mm -hmm. you don't, you know, like, that's kind of the bare minimum, yeah? So there is something to it. It doesn't work perfectly, but it is a system that's kind of necessary. And so, um, you know, in terms of that, when I first kind of got transmission, I didn't even want to teach. I, I felt then, as I feel right now, 20 years later, I feel the exact same, which is who am I to teach or help other people when I have so much work left to do on myself? When I'm not an example of these teachings, how can I, how can I say them? It feels uh, artificial or false, or how do I help others when I'm not fully done helping myself and I feel as much that way as I did the very first day that I was asked to teach but in these terms um, you know after about six months of not teaching I got in some trouble with my teacher and you know he set me straight and he did so in many ways but one of the things that he said in these terms was he said uh, the, the only person on earth whose opinion it matters on whether or not you're ready to teach is mine and I'm saying go teach <laughs> <laughs> What he was kind of saying was like, you know, it's your, it's your time, and, and, that's, and that's the way that it is. And, you know, he, he's also said to me, you don't have to be ready to teach. You have to be okay with the fact that you're not. All that kind of set me straight. That's a very big topic and a very beautiful one. And, and there, there's a, you know, in our, in our tradition, in, in all of tea, there's an emphasis in Zen as well on, you know, uh, on the beginner's mind, which is a translation of the Sanskrit word for wisdom. Sanskrit word for wisdom is prajna, and pra means before, and nya is knowledge. So in Zen, we translate that as the beginner's mind, and we try our whole life to keep the beginner's mind, to 
to keep the mind that is receptive and humble and open and ready to learn at any moment, ready to learn from anything or anyone um, and grow and, and get better. Um, and, and so that's that story of Rikyo where you have discipline and training and form, but you also have the ability to like be a student at any moment and to surrender and let go of the form at any moment, you know? Martial arts would be another great example. You you go into a dojo or you go into a, a kung fu studio. I grew up practicing kung fu, and you do like forms in Japan. They're called kata, right? So you do those katas, you do those forms over and over again. But then, if you get into a situation where you have to defend yourself or defend someone else, you can't just start doing forms. Like you can't. You, you're you want to protect some woman on the street from some hooligans. You can't just start doing katas in the middle of the road. It's not going to. It's not going to serve you. You have to be able to let go of those forms. Um, but having done those forms for all those years is going to empower your body uh, to actually do something of meaning. And so that goes for everything. Right? That goes for music or art or, or tea ceremony. Having the form is going to empower you to create um, a, a, a ceremony that is more meaningful on a physical and ceremonial spiritual level. Um, you know, you'll, you'll be more empowered to do that. Just like studying uh, brushes will empower you to make better paintings and express your creativity more. In fact, I'm also a painter, um, have been almost my whole life. And I can remember in high school wanting to take art classes because I had a, a like very clear vision in my head of what I wanted to put down on paper. I had a very, like I could see the painting very clearly in my head but my hands lacked the skill to translate it into physical space. And then, so learning form is like freedom because it expands capability in a way. Yes, it also roots you. Mm -hmm. So that you're, you're like, which is, a, you know, Chinese people, this is one of their biggest criticisms of Western people is that we're on all unrooted. Mm -hmm. Like in terms of family, I don't know if you know this, but here in Taiwan and China, it's illegal, illegal to not take care of your parents, for example. Mm. Which, you know, the, the amount of prosecution cases prosecuted here is probably zero because nobody would like even think, to, I, don't, I don't think very many, there might be a few, but it's, it's very few causes nobody would think to do that. But that's just one example. But having form, having tradition, having lineage roots you so that you're, you're you know, in martial arts, as in tea brewing, uh, a lot of tea brewing and martial arts are related. So the bottom half of the body is is your stance. Your your bottom half is rooted. It should be strong and connected. And then your upper half of your body is completely loose and free and flows and moves. And so being rooted allows for freedom, right? The the other analogy that we can approach this and get at this is um, I don't know how much you know about Taoist geomancy, but um, it, it's called feng shui. Uh, which some people have heard that word in the West, feng shui, uh, which means uh, wind and water, but it's, it's Taoist geomancy. So there's a real strong relationship between mountains and rivers. Mountains create stability. They keep out um, enemies. They, keep, they protect the country. They create stability. And they create the, ultimately the flow of water. And then in China, some of the largest infrastructure projects that have ever been done on this earth were, were the canals and rivers that connected all of ancient China. So almost all goods and commerce, and that doesn't just mean commerce of physical goods, it means also commerce of ideas, 
of, of, of innovation and, and intellectual prosperity as much as economic prosperity, all of that was carried by the rivers. So mountains and rivers have this powerful relationship. If you're too much mountain, then you dry up, you don't flow, you stop growing, you become constricted and tight and, and start to die. But if, without the stability of the mountain, the river, the, the, the river also doesn't flow. And the river swamps. It turns into a stagnant swamp. So, you, so either way, you get stagnation. If you're too tight um, and, and your form is just too heavy and oppressive and dogmatic, then you get stagnation. But without discipline and form, without the mountain, without the root, without the bottom half of the body fully rooted so that the top half can move and be free and flow, without the mountains, there isn't a, there, there isn't a flow either. The, rivers get their, the rivers get the momentum to flow from the mountain, mm -hmm. right? The momentum that carries those rivers and carries the, the growth and ideas and prosperity all throughout the country, that momentum, that current begins in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And so you need the mountains to get the flow of the river and you need the flow of the river to move things around. So, so you need stability along with movement, right? So there's a meeting point of, of, of discipline and freedom. And that, you know, that creates flow. That creates the, the, the power is when your bottom half of your body is rooted and the upper half is completely free and flexible. Mm. It's that, that's what that story is highlighting also is that balance of Rikyo's um, root and, and discipline and, and his stance, the bottom half of his body, and the upper half of his body, which is free and, and flowing and connected to the spirit of things and, and to the moment and able to adapt and just be with what is and be unconstricted. Mm. I think um, what you're also saying there also sounds a lot like a balance between masculine and feminine. Yeah, you could say like that, yin and yang, yeah. I also, uh, I took uh, that story of uh, Sen no Rikyu and I related it to fine dining versus casual dining, mm. um, which is interesting because fine dining um, has, I guess there's some detractors to it. And in many ways it's falling out of fashion because um, people find it too tense, mechanical. They find it not fun. It's not the spirit of going out and eating and sharing moments together. Uh -huh. um, but um, the essence of it makes sense, uh, even though it's executed in a way that I think is far too severe. But the essence of it is, you know, you are in, as you would with Japanese tea ceremony, you're like refining skills you're you're paying attention to detail you're you're there's there's movements everything you know every little thing is accounted for that's not normally accounted for in casual dining and, and i think the intent of it is like really like like uh the intent of it has a lot of integrity the intent of it says i respect you know your space and i respect the service I'm trying to offer you. And it suggests a devotion to form and like devotion to form suggests there's like a devotion to something beyond yourself, you know, I guess in that way, beyond your own kind of like impulses, you know, beyond your own tendencies to um, be inconsiderate and sloppy. And I think, I guess that's also to be gained from practitioners of Japanese tea ceremony when you are 
devoted to, to form, you're going beyond yourself in a way. You are kind of going beyond your own individuality into something greater than yourself. Mm. Yes. I mean, not just Japanese tea ceremony, all the tea ceremonies. They all, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, all, they're, all, they're all like oriented in that way. And they're all oriented in a way of also, like, again, it, it's, it's a balance of those two things, of, of, of like a restaurant where you don't feel comfortable because it's too tight in that way. You're talking about stagnation in mountain. There's not enough flow. There's not enough freedom of expression. There's not enough movement. And, 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 but, but then going to the other extreme and just like, you know, just saying like, I brew tea however I like it. Mm -hmm. If tea is something casual for you and more like a beverage, then there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't have any problem with tea as beverage either. I don't feel like tea is a ceremony and, uh, and, uh, and plant medicine or it's beverage. I, I think we can erase that or and put a, much more healthy and in its place um tea the wonderful healthy beverage as long as it's grown in a sustainable way that doesn't hurt the environment um and is good for our health it, it's a wonderful beverage um and and if your approach to it is as a beverage then then certainly brew it however you like but there's no way to get better at brewing tea however you like mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't improve that you can't work with a teacher you can't come over and like i say oh you're getting better you i can tell you've improved since last time and you say, and you want to know how you're like, okay, how did I get better? And I just say, well, it's, it's more how you like it. It doesn't make any sense. You can't, as you said, you can't grow into anything. You can't become anything. There's nowhere to move. It's stagnation. There's mm -hmm. not anything to get better at. And so that also includes uh, one's ability then to serve others uh, is also then limited because, you know, in the school of life, ultimately we can graduate whenever we want. But that's the spirit of tea in the spirit of Zen is a spirit of receptivity. It's a spirit of, of flow and dynamic uh, ebbing and flowing of tides, giving and taking in balance. So there's like an, an endless studentship. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned in the introduction, my teacher always said, the only masters in Zen are those who have passed away. The rest of us are students of Zen. Mm -hmm. And I'm always telling my students the same. If you want to call me a tea master, wait till I'm dead. I still have so much more to learn. Mm -hmm. I'm learning all the time. If you want to, you can orient towards that as something overwhelming and you don't like it. Or there's another orientation, which is just excitement. Like I'm super excited that there's so much more to explore. Mm -hmm. That even after 30 years of this practice, I turn corners all the time and discover whole new worlds of tea that I didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. um, because it's big. And, and just doing that, that exploration just you know i'm still in love after all these years it's like being in love with an amazing woman and you want to get to know her on all levels and if you're fully in love then like she'll continue to fascinate you 20 years later 30 years later like you'll be uncovering and exploring aspects of her you didn't know were there and if you if you take the opposite road and be like hey you know i'm done exploring then you just you've created a situation of stagnation and that relationship probably won't last because you'll get you'll grow bored and complacent and you'll take their love for granted and you'll start like seeking other things and thinking along those lines so staying in love is also a part of the continual growth and that continual growth requires you know certainly something to grow into but then 
but then again, back to the balance. Again, as you're saying, like any one given meal, any one given tea ceremony, right? As I said earlier, as my teacher said, when you're with me, you can do nothing right. And when you're not, you can do nothing wrong. It's like once it's game time, the coach doesn't have anything to say. They just clap. Once you and I sit down for a ceremony and I start brewing, that ceremony will be what it is. And we have to just let it be what it is in its, in its, in, in its perfect expression. Mm-hmm. So the Japanese have a very famous Zen master who explored a lot of these teachings that we're talking about through flower arranging, ikabana, which mm-hmm. is another, just another method of ceremonializing daily life. And actually the screenwriters took his, his story and adapted it into the screenplay for the movie The Last Samurai. But this very famous Zen master, you know, he often would tell his students that a life spent pursuing the perfect blossom would not be a wasted life. Mm-hmm. And then near, near his death, when, they put, the, when they, put the, they put an arrangement near his bed that he could look at while he died, he said, they're all perfect. <laughs> Which is then used in the screenplay for The Last Samurai, right, with Katsumoto. But um, it's the same thing. Like, I, I would say that a life spent pursuing the perfect cup of tea would not be wasted. But at the same time, on the other side, they're all perfect. Mm-hmm. They're all part, like, this is the, you know, this is the balance of all spiritual practice. On the one hand, that you are perfect just as you are. And as I said earlier, all of the insights are already inside of you. They come hardwired because the world itself is already enlightened. It's already awake. Um, it's already buddhified. It's already, you know, as Paul Simon says beautifully in one of his songs, the cross is in the ballpark. Why deny the obvious? Right? It's already, it's already sanctified. It's already there. Um, and at the same time, on the other hand, there's work to do. And if you get too lost in either of those, it's, it's the balance. The Zen is kind of the paper-thin um, place between those two. If you get lost in either one of those, you, you lose your way and stagnate. If you get lost in there's, there's work to do, you get constricted and you get over tight and you get judgmental and you get snobby and you forget why you're practicing. But if you go the other road and you just say, everything's already free, man, then you get complacent and you get lazy and you get uh, purposelessness and chaos. Um, so there's a balance between these things, right? And that's expressed very beautifully. And there's a Zen story. Um, uh, about the, the transmission between the fifth and sixth patriarchs. Um, uh, the fifth patriarch's name was Hongren. And Hongren, he, had, he was dying. They, a lot of these old masters, they knew the dates of their death. My teacher also told us exactly when he was going to die um, through meditation. And um, he knew it was, his time was coming. And he, he, most everyone in the community assumed that he would hand off the bowl and the robe, which were the symbol of like the abbotship and the, and the lineage, that he would hand off that to, um, to his most senior student, whose name was Shan Xiu. And, uh, but he had some kind of like tinkling in his toe that maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. He wasn't saying it certainly wasn't the right thing to do, but he had just a little bit of a feeling that maybe it wasn't. So he decided to have a kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, a contest. So he said to the whole community, the one who, who writes a poem expressing the deepest essence of Zen will be my successor and get the robe and bowl. And uh, Shen Shou came to his room in the night 
and he handed him this scroll early in the morning, like right before they were going to wake up. Monks wake up early, like 5 a.m. So let's say 4.30, he comes with the scroll and says, here you go, master, here's my Zen poem. And uh, Hongren read the poem and was extremely impressed. He assembled the entire monastery into the main hall, and he had the poem enshrined on the, on the main altar. Uh, and the poem said, uh, the body is the, is the Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. Take care to wipe the mirror clean so there's nowhere for the dust of light. So the Bodhi tree is the tree, that, the enlightenment tree that the Buddha set under, right? So the body is our vessel of practice. The mind is a mirror. Keep the mirror clean and it will ref reflect reality truthfully. Um, the body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. Take care to wipe the mirror clean so there's nowhere for the dust of light. And Hongren told the entire congregation, the one who practices this will certainly become a Buddha in this lifetime. And uh, certainly become enlightened in this lifetime. And uh, Hongren, like many uh, Buddhist masters at that time, he liked to collect strays. Uh, you know, Buddhists tend to be very compassionate and, you know, vegetarian and all that. So collecting stray animals, stray dogs, stray monkeys, but also orphans. And they would raise the orphans, and then, you know, when they became of age, they could choose to be a monk or go off on their own. Uh, one of the most famous tea saints, Lu Yu, of all time, was, was one such orphan who left the monastery when he became a man. But anyway, there was this orphan in the kitchen named Huineng. And uh, he was a big part of the tinkling in the toe of Hongren about maybe not giving the succession to Shan Xiao. So Huineng was in the kitchen washing dishes, and a monk came down the hallway chanting that poem. And Huineng said, what's that you're chanting? And the monk said, well, the master said that the one who practices this will in this life surely become a Buddha, and I wish to be a Buddha, so I'm going to memorize this poem and put it to great use. And that night, Huineng went into the shrine room, and he tacked a, a second poem next to the first one. And his poem said, there never was a Bodhi tree, nor a mirror bright. So please tell me, where's the dust to light? <laughs> uh, and so at the moment he tacked that on the wall, they say that Hongren woke up and went downstairs and found him and took him into the, into the nearby hills. And, and for the first time ever, the transmission ceremony was ha happened in private. <laughs> and he gave him the bowl and rope and told him about a cave that he had spent time in when he was a young man and told him to go hang out in that cave for nine years and practice. <laughs> and um, during that time, Hongren died and the whole community thought he had gone insane and they elected Shen Chou as their abbot and uh, were just sad that they had lost the symbols of their lineage, the bow and rope, until nine years later when Huineng came out of that cave and they all acknowledged his, his enlightenment and he was established as the sixth patriarch. But if you look at the story, the, the, it's talking about the, the balance that we've been talking about for, for this whole discussion. Is, is that Zen is that paper-thin place between the two poems. The body is the Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright, take care to wipe the mirror clean so there's nowhere for the dust to light. And there never was a Bodhi tree nor a mirror bright, so please tell me where's the dust to light. If you think that the second poem beat the first somehow, you, you, there's a lot of problems that you then have with the story, right? <laughs> Which is a Western tendency. We want the, the, the second poem to win. Then you have a problem with why then did... Hongren tell the congregation that the ones who practice the first poem will become Buddhas. And if practice is not important, why send Huinong off to a cave to practice for nine years? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, right? There's a lot in that story. You know, part of why Plainon got the transmission is because unlike Shanqiu, who brought the poem all uh, obsequiously to his teacher's door, Plainon just tacked the poem on the main altar without asking anybody. <laughs> yeah. And But really, the power of the second poem, what the second poem establishes is not a new perspective. What the, poem, what the second poem really establishes is a relationship between these two poems. Mm-hmm. The second poem by itself doesn't make much sense. The, the second poem requires the first poem to be genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you hear the second poem, you're like, wow, that's brilliant. But that's only because you've heard the first poem. Yeah. Without the first poem, the second poem isn't so genius. The beauty, the power, the Zen, because remember the contest was the one who can write a poem that captures Zen the best will, will get the transmission. So the Zen in the second poem is not in, in and of itself. It's, it's that it's calling attention to the relationship between the two poems. Mm-hmm. It's that relationship that is all spiritual practice, right? On the one hand, you are perfect just as you are right now and there's nothing to be done. And on the other, there is work to be done in this life. And uh, w- we need a dose of both of these. And that's what that story that you, that you told about Rikyo is also expressing, right? On the one hand, there's work to be done. On the other, we're perfect just as we are. And we need to be able to like rest in that insight. Um, you know, and there's all kinds of ways of dancing with these two things, right? In both, in both directions in the direction of you're perfect just as you are, but then like 10 minutes later, you forget that. So how do you create a practice that allows you to remember that more often? And then in the other direction, there's these 10 pictures that are meant to express the Zen journey. They're called the ox herding pictures. Um, in, in my book, um, Zen and Tea, One Flavor, I actually painted them uh, in terms of tea. I adapted them and instead of an ox and an ox herder, I painted the 10 paintings um, with relationship to tea. Um, but the final, the final painting isn't the emptiness of enlightenment. The final painting is the now enlightened master goes down into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So in, in Buddhism, you know, there's a little phrase that we tack on to everything we do. And it can sometimes get dogmatic and you can lose the, a flavor for it if you do it too much. But it's important. It's an important phrase that we tack on to everything we do, which is the clause. You, it's like comma and then the clause for the good of all beings. So mm-hmm. why do I practice? For the good of all beings. It's like we were talking earlier about music or painting. There's not much point in evolving your musical skills if you're just going to play in your basement. The purpose of evolving your musical skills is so that you can perform for other people. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you can't master music without doing that because there are lessons that can't be learned in a basement. There, there's a point after which you'll hit a ceiling, in other words, you, you, in order to go on you will have to uh, start sharing that which you've learned. So ultimately, the point of the practice, you know, also is to be able to share. Like in the um, Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell talk, goes through all the hero myths of all the cultures of the world. And one thing they all have in common, all the hero myths, is that the, the hero always goes on the journey for the same reason. The hero doesn't go on the journey for the sake of personal gain, the hero always goes on the journey to bring a boon back for his people. When you're saying too about like teaching when you're not ready to be a teacher, but you're the thing that makes you 
be ready for a teacher is not your ability to perform perfectly, but it's simply the need of, of the people for what you have to teach. And then it's that act of service that continues to catalyze one's own uh, self-development because now more is at stake, not just, you know, one's own, you know, view of themselves and how well they're practicing and living, but also how well they show up for the community they're serving. Mm. Yeah. Well, one thing I've realized over the last 20 years of teaching is that actually the thing that makes me a good teacher is that I'm a good student. Mm-hmm. Um, both in two terms. Like we have a saying in, in our teacher tradition, which is um, behind every uh, brewer, behind every, you, you know, the traditional saying is master, but I don't really like that word. So behind every brewer, there's a chatong. And a chatong is the, like the assistant, the one who gets your water and boils it for you and brings the kettles and helps you to hand out the tea if it's a big group and, and, mm-hmm. and, and does all those things. And the first, th- this, this phrase has two meanings. The first meaning of this phrase is obviously that that when I go out and serve tea, I can't do it. I physically can't do it without the help of the assistant, mm-hmm. right? Without their help, like just like a, a star can't perform their, their, their Broadway show without the help of the stagehands backstage moving props around. So I can't do what I do without them. That's the first meaning of the, of the phrase. But the second meaning of the phrase, the deeper meaning you could say, is that I myself was once chatong. Like I did that. I did that for many years. I, I was the training in that same way. Um, and so there's two aspects. I wouldn't have anything to teach if I didn't spend a significant portion of my life learning. Mm-hmm. So by being a good student, I was able to gather uh, much more resources that helped me to then teach. Mm-hmm. But there's another whole other layer of this, which is that teaching itself is a skill. So on a meta level, teaching itself, all of the things we've been discussing this whole time also apply to teaching itself. In other words, I'm a student of teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm a much better teacher now than I was even five years ago in every way. And I continue to improve uh, as as much as I can to the best of my abilities. I I try to get better at it um, in all the ways that are, you know, there because it it, it is also a skill. Yeah, no doubt. And I think... um... I'm thinking about uh, the beginner's mind, you know, and the value of that, of, uh, of being open and available. I made this connection later, actually. So when I was either flying to the, the tea center in Taiwan, where we first met in person, or when I was leaving, um, I, I, I watched on the airplane the movie Avatar. <laughs> and I, I assume you've seen Avatar. Yeah, it's the you know it's this uh, it's these sort of tribal earth connected um, people, uh, alien race, and then the sort of you know like the like the industrial like Western future scientists you know, and then they they through their technology they can go into the avatar bodies and so they can breathe their air and live amongst them and learn more, in this sort of like anthropological way, right. Uh-huh. Um, but then they're like living amongst them in their in their bodies, and and then the Navi people uh, know, you know, that they're they're Earth humans, and they say, uh, what did they say? They said it is it is hard to fill a cup that is already full, you know, mm. 
as in there's, you know, there's no space for them to learn what we have to offer because yeah, they, yeah. they think they've already got it figured out. <laughs> yeah, we have a tea story like that, right? The professor comes to see the monk and he has many, many questions. And the monk says, before I answer your questions, let's drink some tea. And then the monk proceeds to pour tea and keep pouring, pouring, pouring until the tea spills over onto the tatami to a resounding, hey, what are you doing? And the monk says, your mind is like this cup, so please tell me where am I to pour my wisdom? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, uh, and yeah. I learned, and actually it was in, um, in that visit that, um, that you, you actually discussed tea ceremony as a microcosm of, um, you know, one's cup being empty and available to knowledge, you know, as the microcosm of, of the beginner's mind. And um, it was funny that, it was th that I was there because I was definitely, I, got, I spent six months in India um, devouring yogic philosophy and thinking I had the secrets of the universe in me. And um, <laughs> I was actually struggling with finding cup room for other things uh, that I later sorted out. So it turned out to be the, uh, the exact teaching I needed uh, at that moment. So it yeah, was- I mean, kind of, kind of what we've been talking about this whole time is a really beautiful, beautifully expressed in a tea bowl which a t-ball that sits empty all the time never fulfills its purpose. But a t-ball that stays full all the time also never fulfills its purpose. It's in the filling and emptying of the cups or the bowls mm -hmm. that the ceremony happens. It's in the filling and, and then consuming and digesting and then filling and then consuming and digesting. That's how we live. That's like the pulse and rhythm of life. We consume and then we digest and then we consume and then we digest. We have to flow in that way. Like that story of Rikyo beautifully expresses that it's not desirable to pass beyond that. Passing beyond that is, is passing beyond life. That's, that's death when you stop moving. Life is flexible and moving and, and death is hard and stiff. And, and, you know, our life is, is about that, about, about that balance that we've been discussing this whole time between, between the, the legs which are rooted and in, in form and discipline and tradition and the upper half of the body, which is fluid and flows. Or, or if you want to think in terms of a tree, the bottom half is rooted in the ground and the top half can grow and, and each tree will be unique. It will have different branches and different flowers and grow in different directions, but rooted in the same soil. Mm -hmm. So like I always tell the students here, what you're getting here is the, is the, is the pot to plant your bonsai in. And then once it grows out of that pot, you, it, you can shape it into whatever you wish it to be. I'm just wondering if you can leave uh, my community with maybe some guidance because something occurred to me when you were talking about, you know, feeling that sense of always feeling that there's something to discover, which I feel, you know, it's kind of a symptom of modern life to have kind of lost enthusiasm for that. And it's especially crystallized in, in my industry, in the hospitality industry, where people are showing up to work to to an environment where there's constantly new things happening. I mean, in, you know, I work in a restaurant, and so it's always like new challenges, new people, new possibilities for connection, and yet people are, are walking around with this sort of dispirited, you know, same old crap kind of attitude, and, mm -hmm. um, and, they're, and they're missing everything happening, you know, and missing all that they can gain from, from really approaching um, their work with the beginner's mind. So I'm wondering if there's anything you can leave people in this state with. It, it, what you said is very interesting. Like it's, it, you know, for, 
thousands of years censorship was based on a control of information. So the powers that be had access to information and everybody else didn't. And like getting access to information that, you know, that this was the whole of, of censorship. But now in, in our age, it kind of goes the opposite direction. There's just an over inundation of, of information. And that's the censorship. So that power in this day and age is more not about getting access to information, but about knowing which information to ignore. As you said, there's a lot of noise. Connecting to the heart of things is, is, is why we, we, we ultimately we need a practice. We need mm -hmm. a, a practice. You know, tea ceremony is a beautiful practice. It's very simple to start out. Um, it, obviously, it can go as deep as you want it to, and it can be a lifelong endeavor, and you can, you can continue to learn and learn and learn and learn. And, and as I said, I've been doing this 30 years, and I feel like a beginner. Um, but, but starting it is very accessible. That's one of the beautiful things about tea is that it, it doesn't require much to start the journey. So you don't have to um, subscribe to any religious philosophy, for example. Tea is not, that's unnecessary. Uh, you don't need to have many instruments. You don't, there's not much needed to get started. Um, and, uh, and, and in doing so, it can, it can have real powerful value in, in people's lives. I usually, when I go out, I give people the homework to try seven days of um, drinking at least three bowls of tea in the morning. Um, you can have as many as you like, but at least three. And uh, the only qualification, so no form at this stage. At the very beginning stage, there's no need for form. Um, so the only um, condition is that during those three bowls of tea, you don't do anything else. So no multitasking, no cell phone, no music, no talking, nothing. Just three bowls of tea in the morning. Most people wake up, they want a caffeinated beverage anyway in the morning. So it's easy to apply and it starts to fit into your life. And it might make a difference. It might not. If at the end of the week you decided it didn't do anything for you, then so be it. Abandon it. But give it a try for a week and you might find that it might start to change everything in your life. Um, there's, there's a whole world out there and, and it's very noisy. And, and so in essence, what a big part of what that is, is, is learning what to listen to, what not to, um, to quiet down enough to drown out all the noise and listen to the beat of the heart come home to the body as we started out saying to the present moment and to one's own insight in one's own body. Um, you know, be, being of service really, you know, is one of the greatest uh, gifts that there is in this world. The greatest gift you can really give someone is the opportunity to give um, because what we all really want, even on an echoic level, before we even get into the transcendental, um, which is a whole other story, but on a very on a very basic level, like even egoically, what we all want is to matter. And we, we often have it backwards. We think that, uh, you know, the more I take care of myself or pamper myself, I, the better I'll feel, the happier I'll be. But, but that actually doesn't make you feel like you matter. It takes it away. And uh, the real method to, to, to matter is to make other people matter to you. Because if you stop anybody on the street, and real quick, just to have them fire off, who matters most to you in your life? If you just shoot that question at anybody, anybody from any walk of life, when, when I ask you right now who matters most to you in your life, your answer is gonna be the person who you matter to them. You're gonna choose your grandma or your mom or your beloved, right? And the reason that is the person you're choosing is because they matter to you because you matter to them. And so 
the, the way to matter is to make more people matter to you. If you want to put this in another way, the way to be loved is to love more people. The more you love, the more you will be loved, obviously. Amazing. Wow. Couldn't have asked for a better antidote to that malady. Thank you again for uh, for joining me. It was such a, such a great conversation. Uh, yes. Wonderful. Wonderful to talk to you, brother. All right. Check out the show notes for links to how you can subscribe to Global Tea Hut and be part of this awesome movement and get the most amazing and fascinating magazine that I know of along with the sample of amazing tea to begin a practice of sitting with tea mindfully and see where it takes you. And in those show notes, you will also see links to the Serve Conscious homepage, www.serveconscious.com for more free content and past episodes that are also awesome and exciting with fascinating people telling me stuff that blows my mind. And also I'm sending special wishes to everyone in the Bahamas. Hurricane Dorian is just hanging over the island about to really, really cause a lot of problems there. So really sending a lot of love. I'm in Miami and I'm very fortunate that we're not getting the brunt of the blow once again. I encourage everyone to see how they can get involved helping the people of the Bahamas restore their community. It's not going to be an easy road. All right. See you later. Bye-bye.